You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, A couple things to get out of the way before we get into... The Bible. Uh, yes, I have a handlebar mustache. That is, some might think it's like the midlife crisis thing. Jury's still out on that, I suppose. Uh, the kids wanted it, so I have it. So that is certainly a dad thing, right? Uh, speaking of a little bit of midlife crisis thing, uh, one thing I'll point out, and then we'll just we'll get right into the text. One more thing. I have these socks on as a gift for my 40th birthday. Uh, blue with my dog Winston on it. These could be the finest pair of socks that I now own. So thank you for that gift. Um, Everyone knows I love my dog, Winston. All right. With a little bit of levity out of the way, let's get into God's word. We are in our sermon series, United in Christ, united in Christ through faith and the gospel united to one another because of our union with Christ. As it pertains to this sermon, I have been mulling over this particular topic since the very first sermon in the book of Ephesians. Um, Just really thinking about what does it mean for, for a person to say, I identify with this, that, or with Jesus, you know? What is our identity? What does it mean to have an identity that is in Christ? And so my prayer is that from Ephesians 1, you can gain a biblical perspective of how you view yourself and how you view others and how God views you as we get into his word. Now, I will not directly address cultural issues. I mean, that would be just endless qualifications when we talk about the issue of identity. Um, There is much more that can be said than these next 40 minutes, but you're going to make connections immediately in your head with with what you see going all around you in culture. You're going to make immediate connections about your own personal life. And so I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help you apply what we read and what we see in Ephesians 1. So let me briefly pray, ask for God's help, and let's look at Ephesians 1. I promise you this is the last sermon in Ephesians 1, and then we'll get to Ephesians 2 next week. Heavenly Father, indeed, I need your help. I am indeed a very fallible human being. I'm needy, a needy beggar. So by the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word And help us just to gain a biblical perspective of what it means to have an identity that is wholly wrapped up in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to walk away encouraged from your word, challenged by your word, also to help us understand how we can view the world around us through your word. Pray for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Growing up, my father would blare the song, Who Are You?, by The Who, <laughs> written by Pete Townsend. I uh, played it all the time, especially on Saturday mornings when he'd be cleaning the house. I don't particularly recommend the song, uh, but it poses an important question. Who are you? For generations, philosophers and theologians have tried to answer this question. 
Even if you're not a philosopher or a theologian, the question looms large in the mind of so many people. For example, let's talk about Jesus. Who is Jesus? We can say Jesus is the Son of God, which is a highly theological statement talking about his identity. Who is Jesus? Son of God. It's a big deal. We can say Jesus is of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Read read that in the New Testament. Um, We see that his identity was associated with his hometown. So my daughter Isabel, who's my youngest, she would say, uh, I'm Isabel Powers of Adel, Iowa. Her family name, her town and state make an identity claim, several claims about her being and about her life. One of the uh, primary themes of Ephesians 1 is that your union with Christ is saying something about your identity. Ephesians 1 helps us to answer the question, who are you? Who are you? Now, here's the problem. Because we live in a world that is constantly trying to answer the question for you, We have to think biblically. And we need to believe from God's word, not from the noise around us, about how to answer this question, who are you? So this entire message is focused on how you understand your identity. Your identity answers the question, who are you? Here are some cultural identity claims. I'm going to kind of run through a list. Sometimes it's, these claims are helpful. Other times it's not beneficial and even harmful. Uh, Chloe and Isabel are my daughters, and they are, I say, children. Of course, there will be a point in their life, Lord willing, where they'll go from children to adults. But a word is being used to describe something about them. In this situation, the claim that I'm placing upon my daughters will one day change. How about this? Sean Powers is a white male. The word white helps to convey the melanin in my skin. And the word male describes my God-given gender. These words, to some degree, describe my identity. And these words, these, these, this part of my identity is fixed. Even if I'm sunburnt, which happens every summer, I will always be white and look white. And I will always be male. These characteristics are given by God. So, words are used to describe my appearance. And these words make, make claims of identity. Politics and news outlets make identity claims at a pace that I just cannot keep up with. It's like dizzying. I mean, go ahead and read the news. Almost every story uses words to describe the individuals in the story. Sometimes descriptive words that express a person's identity are sometimes withheld because of the author's bias. Description, descriptive words that convey a person's identity are a powerful tool. And we read in the book of James, for example, words can be a tool used to tear down other people. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase identity politics. Oxford Dictionary says identity politics is this. A tendency for people of a particular religion, race, social background, etc., to form exclusive 
political alliances, moving away from traditional broad-based party politics. So if you take Oxford Dictionary at its word, no pun intended, really no pun intended, I can't make a pun to save my life, it just happens on accident. But if you take, anyways, I digress. If you take Oxford Dictionary at its word, the characteristics of a group of people are used for a political end goal. Identity claims are being made on a group of people with similar characteristics. Here are a few claims repeated every four years. Every four years we, when we have our general election. You've heard these. I know you have. The majority of evangelicals vote Republican. You hear that? How about this one? The majority of black people in America vote Democrat. You've heard that? Now, regardless of your opinion about the claims themselves, these, this type of rhetorical claims, these type of rhetorical claims about a group's identity are just used nonstop. Here are a few more examples of how people proclaim their identity, and then I'll show you what all these examples have to do with Ephesians 1. Patriotism can be an identity claim. Matt. I'm not against being patriotic. A person might be patriotic because he or she is thankful for their country. And it's not just an American thing. I've traveled around the world. And in every country, I've met people who love their country. However, patriotism can be taken to a level where all a person identifies with is their country. It's like, get me the flag, I'm going to wrap it around like a robe, and I'm just going to run around town. There's a reason, it's kind of a side note, there's a reason why I don't prefer an American flag in the sanctuary or auditorium. I mean, it's there because we're in someone else's church, and I want to respect them, but there's actually a reason behind why I don't prefer that. Now, I love America and its founding values, but I do not want to ever confuse patriotism with my identity in Christ. My faith is in God and not in any elected official or fallible documents. I've seen Christians who are, who are more adamant about defending the Constitution than they are their Bible. I mean, they'll tell you chapter and verse of the Constitution, but they don't got a clue what's in here. Their identity is in the wrong place. And at the very least... It's not prioritized properly. Here's one more example of a cultural identity claim. It has become popular for people to put into their social media bio or, and or, after their name in an email, their preferred gender pronouns. Now, I have many thoughts on this, but I need to stay focused. <laughs> Lots of thoughts. But when a person puts their preferred gender pronouns, he, him, his, she, her, hers, them, they, their, and there are more, there are more, a, a proclamation of identity is being signaled to the person who's receiving that email or who's on Twitter looking at that bio. They're making an identity claim about their life. So what's my point? On the one hand, Claims of 
Identity, identity claims are helpful and reasonable. They can be for certain. Sean Powers will never cease to be a white male. It's not going to happen. God made me this way, and I can celebrate and be thankful for the way God has made me. Every person, not just Christians, can celebrate the characteristics which God assigned to them. On the other hand, these characteristics, which become identity claims, can be used negatively. Identity claims can become generalized, politicized, weaponized, agenda-driven. And in my opinion, there is an identity crisis in the church. This crisis is happening because Christians value and prioritize physical identity claims, sometimes against an identity that is first to be in Christ. What we have seen, what, what have we seen over and over in Ephesians 1? What have we seen here? The primary identity claim a Christian can make is his or her identity is in Christ. Any discussion about your identity begins with Christ and ends with Christ. Could God's word be more explicit about your true identity? I, I don't think so. Right out of the gate in the book of, book of Ephesians, what do we read? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then two verses later, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, where? In Christ. We keep reading that over and over again. That's an identity claim being made by God toward you. And then the following verse, even as he chose us, you were chosen. Where? What? How? In him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And yet there is more. Here is verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. But not to be outdone, it says in verse 11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And last but not least, we read in verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, where? What did you believe in? In yourself? No way. And the person sitting next to you, not a chance in him, in Christ. Not only is a Christian's identity in Christ, but the implications are also unbelievable, unbelievable until you realize by faith they are to be believed. Listen, I know that talking about identity can be controversial because of the broader cultural discussion. I get that. My intention is to be wholeheartedly biblical. And when scripture speaks, I will, I will speak. And Christians must get the question right. Every Christian, regardless of how God made you, have to get this question right. Who are you? Who are you? is not what the world says, but what God says. So, let me back up for a moment and look at the foundation of Paul's identity claim that a person who is a disciple of Jesus Christ is in Christ. There are, there are vo voices in culture attempting to use God-given characteristics to divide. But what if we can see what people have in common before observing what makes people different from one another? Here's an essential point because it can help us temper some of the more unhelpful identity claims within the church and outside the church. All people, 
without exception. All people, without exception, are made in God's image. All the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, as God was creating the world, it says on the sixth day of creation, so God created male in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27 is a powerful verse with all kinds of ramifications. When Paul wrote Ephesians 1, he knew Genesis 1. First, human beings are the crown jewel of God's creation. Out of everything God created, a special and unique status is given to men and women. Every man and woman is made in God's image. You know, you, you go home and look in the mirror. Go, um, do this. Please do this. Go look in the mirror when you get home. What you will see staring back at you is a person made in God's image. Second, regarding this verse that I think is the foundation of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1, there is an inclusive claim being made in Genesis 1.27. All men and women, regardless of the color of skin, ethnic background, familial status, age, color of your hair, maybe lack of hair, height and weight are made in God's image. Parenthetically, for a moment, I do think it's significant that gender is being pointed out here in Genesis 1. That's very important to see. But other than that, regardless of what you look like or those characteristics that you have, you are indeed made in God's image. Therefore, while there are differences between people, all people are made in God's image. And here's the deal for Christians, because we know the truth. If all people are made in God's image, no exceptions, how come there is so much hate in the Christian Twitterverse and Facebook and Instagram, the podcasting, the YouTubing, right? Especially when it comes to using identity claims. I mean, I, I get why non-Christians might use a person's color, gender, age, familial status to make sweeping identity, identity claims for political and social purposes. I get that. I'm not going to hold non-Christians to Christian standards. But in the church, no, please no. It should not be the case. The church must believe that every person, Christian or not, is valued and has dignity. Because every human being is uniquely made in God's image, every human being is more alike than they are different. I'm going to say that again. Because every human being is made in God's image, they are more alike than they are different. Perhaps that truth can put some perspective in the dialogue between men and women, black and white, old and young, poor and rich, those who have been educated formally and those who have been educated in the school of hard knocks. But what happened after God made man and woman in his own image? You know the story. Sin entered the world crown jewel of God's creation rebelled. They spat in God's face. So if you want to know why there is so much division due to a person's identity, look no further than Genesis 3. So how do we go about seeing restoration in all these areas of brokenness? The answer is Jesus. 
we need to understand the power of Jesus' gospel message that moves past the exterior and heals what's going on right here, the human heart, in me and in you. A Christian's identity claim goes deeper than what is seen on the outside of a person. The identity claim of a Christian has the ability to join people together who, are, who look completely different. You know why I can go to my brother's country, uh, Uganda, and worship with those people? You know why I can go to Uganda with Joshua and worship? Because of the brothers and sisters who are in Christ like me. Being united in Christ, having our identity in Christ, brings people of all kinds together, which is so beautiful. People who have different lived experiences, people who have different ethnic backgrounds or speak a different language, a person's identity in Christ is the most potent and powerful claim any Christian can make. You might remember this point I made during the first sermon in this sermon series on Ephesians. The opening words of the book of Ephesians says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Ephesians 1.1. I pointed this out. I'm going to point it out again because it gets to how Paul understands his identity. The emphasis of the Greek in this verse is extremely enlightening. We don't see it in the English language, but the words Christ Jesus is in the Greek genitive case. You don't need to concern yourself with that as much as what it actually means to Paul. Here, the case ending, Christ Jesus, in verse 1, is really beneficial. Christ Jesus in the genitive declares ownership over the life of Paul. Paul envisions that he is not only authorized to be this apostle to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel, but Christ wholly owns Paul. He's like, you're mine, Paul. Remember, Paul is writing these words about himself. So I can reword verse 1 to say, verse 1 to say this, Paul, an apostle owned by Christ Jesus by the will of God. If Christ wholly owns Paul, then what does that mean for his identity? Here's what I think it means. Everything about his life is understood because of his union with Christ. You know, at the end of Paul's email or in his Twitter bio, it would not be gender pronouns. I would imagine something like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, united to Christ, owned by Christ, a slave to Christ, saved by Christ and in Christ. Over and over, Paul tells the Ephesian church, and God says to the saints of Redemption Hill Church, you are in Christ, you are in him, you are in Christ, you are in him. If you go to bed thinking that, because I keep saying it over and over, good. Like that song, you can't get out of your head. You are in Christ. Perhaps the most emphatic point God makes in Ephesians 1 regarding your identity is when he says this about adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to, purpose, to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Christian, you are a blood-bought, adopted son or daughter of God. What more extraordinary identity claim could be made upon your life? 
if being an image bearer of God is supposed to help us understand and put into greater perspective how we treat other people, then how much more does your adoption into God's family inform how you treat other people within your family? And do you see how your identity being in Christ also accents God's love for you? A Christian being in Christ is not like any other claim. All the claims that you hear in the world, all the rhetoric, all the noise. For example, I was in Dubuque a few days this last week, and I was visiting my mom and dad after they self-quarantined for 11 months. Um, It was great to see them. My kiddos were eager to play with their grandparents. Well, to get away from the controlled chaos of my parents' house, I took my computer, grabbed lunch at a restaurant in town, um, as the custom, if you ever hung out with me at a restaurant, I chatted up with the waiter. Eventually, I was chatting it up with the restaurant owner. <laughs> and we were talking about all kinds of stuff. It was, it was delightful. Um, would drive some of you crazy if you're with me. <laughs> but I love those type of uh, conversations. Talk about politics, COVID, Christianity. And, you know, I asked the owner a simple question. I asked him, hey, could you, could you help me with my sermon? I'm writing about this particular topic. Can you just answer this question for me? And I asked him, how would he describe his identity as a human being? I'm like, just answer however you want. Just be honest with me. How would you, how would you answer that question? Now, I've given you plenty of uh, identity claims from culture, but I wanted to hear from a human being. He paused and thought it over, and he gave a meaningful response. And I knew this already about him as we had that conversation. There were elements of Eastern mysticism that he believed, but he said this, I am. Two words. I am. That's how he understood his identity. It's interesting to me that Jesus, the Son of God, made the same claim in the Gospel of John. I appreciated his response, but here's the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other faith tradition. A Christian finds his or her identity in Christ and not in the self. Our culture and our faith traditions obsess with the self. A Christian is obsessed with Jesus. And Christians must be careful not to get swept up with the hyper-focus of the self. Here here are a couple examples of of a hyper-focus of the self, which brings to the core how a person understands his or her identity. Just consider the counseling and therapeutic world of the last 70 years. It's a broad span, but the last 70 years or so. The counseling and therapeutic industries have exploded because people are trying to understand themselves. And sometimes rightfully so, trying to figure it out. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as DSM-5, if you've ever taken a counseling course, you've seen this. It's the gold standard for clarifying mental disorders and counseling therapy and psychiatry. Has, this, this, this manual has exploded it's, it's thicker than a law textbook. No joke. My, my point isn't to bash counseling or therapy, although I think the Bible has a lot to say about counseling and therapy. My point is to show there's been an increasing appetite for people to understand the self. For Christians, the focus on the self results in saying, uh, a hyper-focus on the self results in saying, I am. 
in a sentence, like my new friend at the restaurant. Some people take the claim Jesus rightly makes about himself, and they're beginning to apply it to themselves. Here's the the shift I've seen in the church. Christians are more focused on their personal identity at times than on their identity in Christ. There's been a shift from focusing on Jesus to the self. This is a reason, another reason why I think there's a massive identity crisis taking place within the church. What I'm not saying is that Christians can't look at the self when understanding their identity, which is why a theology of the image of God is really important. It's essential. I'm a white male. However, before I can even understand those categories, I have got to understand the impact of being in Christ. Only when I know the profundity of being in Christ can I grasp what it means to be made in God's image with the the characteristics that I have. Here's another way culture impacts how we think about identity. I am officially of the age when I'm supposed to go through my midlife crisis, I guess. And some of you have been there, done that, or in it now. I guess the handlebar mustache and the socks might indicate I am. Um, but, you know, it's the time when you ask a bunch of questions about your identity. It's a time in life, you know, when a person impulsively buys the sports car. In my case, it would be like a pickup truck. And the reason why some people buy the sports car or the truck is that they, at least for a moment, want to identify with that material item. Kind of makes them feel better. Makes them feel cool. I feel real cool driving a brand new 2011 Ford F-150. That'd be awesome. But the midlife crisis, I want to call it that, goes a lot deeper. Here's what I've noticed about my musings as I've approached living approximately half of my life on this earth. I have noticed that my musings have been highly self-focused. Here are the questions I've asked myself. Have I done enough in life? What could I have done differently after 40 years of human existence? Did I make the right choice to plant a church? Have I succeeded in pastoral ministry? Do you hear the common theme in all those questions that I've been asking myself? The reflective questions. It's the word I. Yes, these are okay questions to ask. You can ask questions to yourself, provided they're filtered through an identity that is in Christ. Once again, my identity and your identity begins and ends with Jesus. What else does Ephesians 1 tell us about a Christian's identity being in Christ? We have certainly seen all the spiritual blessings of being in Christ. A few moments ago, I highlighted adoption, and there are several other spiritual blessings in this particular chapter. We read in the second half of Ephesians 1 that being in Christ results in physical actions demonstrating a fidelity to the body of Christ. After going through the string of theological pearls in verses 3 to 14, what does Paul do? He thanks God and prays for his brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. There's there's another level of connectedness here because of a person's spiritual identity. On the one level, all people are made in God's image. Therefore, we extend dignity and respect to all image bearers of God. 
God even extends grace and mercy to all people. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 45. The air in which we breathe, all people breathe, whether they're a Christian or not, is a mercy from God. But we see in Ephesians 1 that there's something deeper and more meaningful going on. Because every Christian's true identity is bound up in Christ, and therefore also bound to one another. The Apostle Paul is tied to his brothers and sisters in Christ at the church of Ephesus. So he prays for them. He, he thanks God for them in verse 16. In this chapter, there, there is a response to the identity claims of being in Christ. Which is not shocking because everyone responds to what they believe their identity is. There's always going to be a response to what you believe about yourself. In other words, there is an immediate and practical impact when a person goes from being consumed with the self to being consumed with Christ. Consider this. The next time a brother or sister in Christ bugs you, and because we're a family, that does happen, right? Instead of complaining, grumbling, or harboring ill will, we pray. Pray for them. Prayer is a response for other people who are not only made in God's image, but share with you the same identity. So, do I think there's an identity crisis in the church? Yes, to some degree, certainly. I believe the church has taken on the claims of the culture to some degree and has not only begun to apply those claims, but make them preeminent over Jesus. And that's the problem. But I think there is time for the church, of course, to reprioritize claims of identity. For example, when I look at you right now in the flesh, I want to first see Christ in you. That's what we want to see. After seeing you as an image bearer God who is in Christ, only then do all the God-given characteristics and traits really begin to make sense. You know, I've said this to several of you at some point. Um, I'll, even, I'll just say it now. Before I am your pastor, a position that explains to some degree my identity, I am your brother in Christ. And now I take my pastoral responsibilities seriously, but God can take that away tomorrow. Right? He can take it away tomorrow. However, what is fixed, what is certain, I am your brother because we are in Christ. So do you see why it's crucial to rightly prioritize various things you identify with? Christ must always be on top. Just think of a camera. You take a picture of a camera, you have a filter. Christ is the filter in which we view and see everything and everyone in the world. Some parents find their identity in their children. Children are fantastic. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Absolutely. But they are not greater than Jesus. Other people find their identity in their job. A job is important. God calls us to work hard. But your job is not more significant than Jesus. Perhaps you have a hobby that consumes your life more than Jesus. If that's the case, it's time for a course correction. It's time to reprioritize how you think about yourself, how you think about others, and certainly what God thinks about you. The only hope for the church, universal and local, 
to stay united is to remain focused on its true and lasting identity. If the focus shifts away from Christ, then around the corner, it won't take long. If the the focus moves from Jesus, you go right around the corner, you know what you're going to find? Boom, division. There will be division. Here's Colossians 3.11, which makes a point of what is most important for Christians in the church. Paul says to the Colossians, Colossian church, here there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Now we could work through the nouns, the proper nouns in this verse and explain the differences between them all. Greeks were different from Jews. The uncircumcised were different from the circumcised. Slaves were perceived to be different from the free. And then we see the words barbarian and synthenti, excuse me. Do, do you know, even know what that word means? It means savage. <laughs> they were calling some people savage. So here in this verse, Paul lists out a ton of diversity between different people groups that, were, that had identity claims to some degree. Groups of people that are of other races, ethnic backgrounds, languages, religious traditions, social statuses, and yet the focus is not in all that. Where's the focus? Christ is all in all. It's Christ. No matter what group you find yourself a part of, everything begins with Christ and ends with Christ. It's the third time I've said, this, said that in this sermon. Your identity is first and foremost in Christ. But here is the absolute beauty of the gospel. We are united in Christ, not despite our differences, but because of our differences. And there will be a day when God will gather the redeemed for his glory. And it will be beautiful. I read this earlier this week out of Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. They're singing to Jesus to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When Jesus returns, we will see the beauty of God's diversity in his image bearers. We will see that. Do not think for a moment when God gathers all of his redeemed that a single person will be thinking about their hair color, their eye color, their height, weight, gender, color of skin, or language. That's not what's going to be going on, no. Every person will be focused on worshiping King Jesus and living for King Jesus. So, I'll end by asking you two questions I've already posed. I stated the first question at the beginning, who are you? How do you answer that? Second question I posed to my new friend, the restaurant owner. How would you explain your identity to another person? If they asked you that question, how would you answer that? The answer to these two questions reveals what you believe about God and about yourself. And what you believe about God and yourself impacts your view of everyone else around you. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.